From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm John Wells. First this morning, we speak with oncologist and professor of medicine at Columbia University, Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee. He is a Pulitzer Prize winner for nonfiction for his book, The Emperor of All Maladies. He joins to explore medicine and our radical new ability to manipulate cells in his new book, The Song of the Cell. Then, gastroenterologist Dr. Shilpo Ravella, who brings us a riveting investigation of inflammation, the hidden force at the heart of modern disease, and how we can prevent, treat, or even reverse it. Her book is A Silent Fire. These guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio on KPCW Park City. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak here with John Wells. Our next guest, Siddhartha Mukherjee, is a Pulitzer Prize winner for nonfiction for his book, The Emperor of All Maladies, and a number one New York Times bestselling author. He's an associate professor of medicine at Columbia University and has just published a new book. It's called The Song of the Cell, and it's a page turner. It tells the story of how scientists discovered cells, began to understand them, and are now using that knowledge to create new treatment and even new humans. Siddhartha Mukherjee, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you for having me. Take us back to when you first saw a cell, and it sort of inspired you, and it was exhilarating. I mean, you've used these words that are really enviable about getting turned on to something. How did you get turned on to a cell? Well, you, when you see a cell, it's kind of an incredible experience. So um, I was at Oxford um, just starting out as a graduate student in Alan Townsend's lab. Alan Townsend is a, a, a great close friend, a, a great mentor, and of course, a, a world-renowned immunologist, and we were studying T-cells. So one evening, I played it out, a spleen of a mouse, gave it some proteins and factors that make T-cells grow, and it was a weekend, and on Monday, I came back, and I saw under the microscope my first real living cell. And there's something about cells that's so seductive under a microscope. They have a kind of inner glow about them. You, you know, when, when you become a cell biologist, you, you learn things about cells you know you know when they're when they when they are full of uh, energy and vitality and life and they're you know able to perform their function um, but I, I use the word refulgent uh, it's really the right word for them they sort of look illuminated from inside um, and then what's amazing about these t cells that we were cultivating is that obviously a cell is the basic unit autonomous unit of life it's a living thing and you don't fully understand it as a living thing until you look at it under a microscope and these T cells would move. They would crawl around the dish and you could, if you were patient enough, you could see them move around. They would extend little feet almost and move around the dish. And what's amazing about them is that then if they would encounter a virus infected cell, which they were supposed to kill, they would give them a kind of a, a sniff and they would, I mean, again, it, it would take patience to, to watch all of this, but they would sniff around then they would give them a sniff and then withdraw a little bit and then go back in front again and then give them a deeper uh, look. Really as if like they were, they, were, they were surveying the cell, this infected cell. And then finally they would get activated. You could see them become activated. They would sort of become flattened out and then they would basically douse the virus uh, infected cell with toxins and kill it. They would send out this almost like a, a little bear hug um, and then throw all sorts of poisons at the cell and this, this other cell would die. Now, you tell me if you watched all of this, how you could not be in complete fascination with, uh, with, with cells. Absolutely. I mean, I think we all can remember the first time we looked through a microscope and we had no idea that there were things moving and, you know, performing functions. And it was, it was exciting, you know, for most of us, it was probably in biology class in junior high or whatever it was, but the way you describe it makes it sound complex, exciting, and yes, exhilarating. Your story sort of starts with the English polymath and the eccentric 
Dutch cloth merchant, well, who are really the first to discover a cell, if not the cell wall, which allowed them to discover the cell. Can you tell us this story? <laughs> this great story is uh, because it's, it's about how opposite they are. So Robert Hooke is the English polymath. Uh, he's an um, indigent young child, comes to Oxford, to Wadham College. I should tell you that when I was at Oxford, I, I lived across one of Hooke's houses uh, by coincidence. And I would walk by every day, and there was a little blue sign. It was a national preserved monument by then. But, um, but you know, it's a place that he performed many of his experiments. But Hooke was just one of these people that you meet in science who... Who, whose interests ranged from physics to mechanics to optics to biology to chemistry to architecture. I mean, he just, he was a complete genius. I, I, there's a line in the book uh, I'm quoting from which says that, you know, his, his intelligence was phosphorescent and elastic. And there's a pun in it because, of course, he, he discovered the law of elasticity that we still use today. Uh, he is the he's the originator of the of the idea of elasticity. So that's Hook for you. And Hook creates a microscope, um, in his case, a compound microscope, two, two lenses. And he's able to visualize, uh, he looks down and he cuts up a, a piece of plant stem, a cork, um, and he looks down and all of a sudden he sees something that's amazing, which is that everyone before him had thought that flesh was continuous that we were made out of flesh and flesh was continuous and that was all there was to it. But he sees that this piece of cork is actually not continuous. It's made out of what he calls a great many little boxes. Um, and by that, you know, he's referring to the idea that, that all throughout that cork are little, little compartments. And he thinks for a name for them, he doesn't know what they are. Uh, he doesn't know anything about their function, but he's seen them, he draws them out and he finally decides to call them cella, uh, cells from the word cella which is a Latin for a small room or a monk's room. And so that's Hook. Uh, Lou and Hook is just the opposite. He's a very secretive, reclusive Dutch merchant, never trained in the sciences formally, but he is a perfectionist, um, highly obsessive. And he starts asking, uh, he, he starts asking questions about the cloth that he's selling. He's interested to make sure that he's getting the right cloth and the right thread. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he's sort of like the, uh, the, the modern day version of, of someone who's, who talks about thread counts. Um, anyway, so, so there he is uh, in, in, uh, in the Netherlands and uh, he invents a microscope for himself. He makes about 500 of these. His microscopes are single lens, but they're incredible pieces of, um, I would say mechanical engineering because they've got tiny screws in them and they get to the right focus. And, a little bit after Hook, he looks down at, uh, stops looking at thread and starts looking at rainwater. Or he, you know, the, the substance between, and this is an actual story, the substance between his teeth. Um, and everywhere he looks, he actually looks at his own semen. Everywhere he looks, he finds these living, what he calls animalcules. Um, and he also begins to realize that they're everywhere. Um, and they're autonomous and they are tiny. Um, and Hook and Lewin Hawk start this correspondence in which they begin to realize that there are things. They don't know what, how universal they are, but they begin to realize that there are things in the world which are tiny, autonomous, and living, and they converge on the idea of, of the cell. It's just absolutely fascinating to me. And Siddhartha, in, 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 in the song of the cell, when you, when you tell the story, I, I start to think about the, the shoulders of the giants that we all stand on. And someone came up with these, these small lenses. Galileo took those lenses and decided to build a device where he could look into the skies. The folks that you just talked about, and in, including Hook, you know, they, they, they have these microscopes and they're not looking into the sky, but they're looking down and they're looking, looking at, at our bodies. And it's just absolutely fascinating what has come from the invention of that lens and how far it's taken us. There are two metaphors that sort of run through the book and you see them again and again in the book. One is this metaphor of seeing. And of course the lens is an instrument of seeing. Um, but so much of cell biology is about seeing. We encounter people like Santiago 
uh, Ramon y Cajal from, from, from Spain, who really figures out the, the most important things about the nervous system without performing any, any experiment as we know it, just by seeing, just by looking at stained sections of the brain and the spinal cord. So that's one metaphor. The second metaphor, of course, is the song. And there's a very, there's a very particular reason. The book was named very late. Usually the, my books are named early. Um, and it was my publisher, Nan Graham, who came up with an ed editor, Nan Graham, who came up with the name. But we just began to realize that there's, that the name has many levels. Of course, you know, one aspect of it is the fact that you know, we're trying to now explore not just the cell, but its song. And by the song, I mean how it lives and communicates with other cells and, and sort of what its inner physiology is. But the other reason the song works is that, you know, we've gone through what I would consider the century of genetics and the and genes, um, which was the subject of my previous book. You can think of uh, the, the genome as a symphony, written a written score. The problem is that a written score without anyone to play it is dead, is lifeless. Just like a genome or DNA without anyone to interpret that DNA is lifeless. It's the cell that enlivens the gene. So this icon that we have of life, DNA as the icon of life, is in some ways an, a, a, a peculiar icon because genes and DNA are, 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 have no life. They're just molecules, they're just chemicals. You need a cell to bring it to life just as you need a conductor or a symphony to bring to life a score which is otherwise obviously has no song. And it's a beautiful dance. There's no question about it. What one question would you like to have answered that has not been answered yet? And you can go anywhere you want with this one. <laughs> well, you know, in my, my universe of cancer biology, I'm very intrigued by many things about cancer. I'll give you one. Um, I'm intrigued by metastases. Metastases for solid tumors is what kills people. Uh, when, when a tumor goes from its primary site to some other site, so, for instance, uh, breast cancer goes into your brain or into your bones. One question that's always fascinated me and continues to fascinate me is why do certain cancers like to go to certain places? What is it about prostate cancer that is so magnetically attracted to bones? You know, the first place it wants to go is bone. What You, you know, you can read the genome backwards, forwards, sideways, and upwards, and it, you, you won't find that answer. What is it about the bone that is so hospitable to prostate cancer? Prostate has no resemblance to bone. If you look at a prostate and bone, they have no resemblance to each other. And yet this cancer just really loves this must be. And we're, we're, we as a community are, are finding out the answer to it right now. There are factors in the bone that make it an ideal house for prostate, metastatic prostate cancer. There are factors in the lungs that make it you know, an ideal house for for instance, other, uh, you know, other kinds of cancer, endometrial cancer, for instance, has a peculiar propensity to, to go to the lungs. So, so, so that's one, I think I could pick out a hundred, but those are all cell biological questions. Um, in our language, we call them seed and soil questions because we're not asking questions about the seed, the cancer, but the soil in which it flourishes, the lung or the bone, whichever one. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Siddhartha Mukherjee. He is the New York Times bestselling author and the author of the new book. He is talking with us about the song of the cell and exploration of medicine and the new human. Siddhartha, you use all of these wonderful adjectives or uh, to describe the cell including things like tampered and tolerant and organized and orchestrating and contemplative and pathogenic. And it really does, it's funny because it, um, it's a bit of a contradiction to ever call the cell basic, you know, the basic unit of life because it is so complex. Which of those um, adjectives do you do you most favor when you talk about the cell obviously it's complex but there are so many stories here we have to well so i mean those adjectives came around because this was a strange book to write i'll just talk a little <laughs> bit about the process of this book because um you know when you write nonfiction, the first thing that people tell you um is chronology is your best friend um follow time and you'll follow the the story of a book um and that's what I've did with Emperor Wall Maladies. It's basically chronological. The gene is basically chronological, although in its late parts, it, it stops being absolutely chronological. 
the problem, and I started off writing this one in a chronological way as well. You know, we start with Lewin Hawk and Hook and Workow and all these other people. But then I realized that, you know, the cell is, is so diverse in its function. Um, and it's so, um, it has, does so many things that in fact, if, if I wrote a simple chronology, if I just said, you know, this is what happened here, then she found that, you know, this thing, then he found that, you would become, it would become like a salad, a, a history salad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, you know, let me organize this book differently. Each chapter becomes a mini history and it becomes a mini history of a particular property of a cell or a particular kind of cell. And we discover that, that and each chapter signals how a cell is creating the, 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 the bizarre and magical thing that we call life. Um, what is it doing to make life happen? So for instance, you know, we talk about the organized cell. Well, cells we have now realized have an incredible internal anatomy. And that anatomy is absolutely essential to their function, to their autonomy. And without that, that autonomy, we wouldn't have autonomous living units. They wouldn't have life. Um, so therefore the organized cell. Um, then we go into the dividing cell. You know, one of the fundamental properties of life is that you have to be able to reproduce. Um, and so therefore we go to the dividing cell. We then go to the guardian cell, for instance, I'm just picking them out at, at somewhat random, mm-hmm. where you know one of the properties of life is, is uh, an ability to withstand um, being invaded by other organisms. Um, we have to have boundaries. Uh, we have to, you know, life has boundaries, it has autonomy, it has uh, a very complex uh, word, uh, homeostasis, the capacity to keep constancy. So we talk about that in the orchestrating cell. So I'm not sure I have one adjective that I like in, I think all of these adjectives point to individual functions of cells and often individual types of cells in a complex body, which allow for life to happen and life, especially human life to happen and function. It seems to me that, you know, for the curious lay person, the the sort of the selfish experience that we all have, you know, one of our loved ones or ourselves um, with cancer, for example, and when T cells are extracted and manipulated and put back into to help heal and attack the cancer, those are the things that we are most familiar with. And I, you know, you start off the book in your introduction with the story of your friend, Sam, and then this young woman, Emily, Sam was treated, but the, the T cells while attacking his tumor also attacked his own liver. And this is a very, I think, important and interesting dichotomy about the role of cells help, you know, either help or harm or any of the plethora of actions that the cell produces. Can you tell us why it, it went awry with Sam? Well, I'm sure no one really knows the full question, but but the, the shorter answer to the question is that T cells are are have two two faces to them. Uh, on one hand, they're the they're the guardians of the body. They have the capacity to detect pathogens that invade the body and raise and coordinate an immune response. Um, when they fail, um, there are many kinds of T cells. Uh, some that I talk about the killer the killer ones that go around sort of like survey drones in the body and find infected cells and kill them. Um, they're ones that are helper ones. Um, and those importantly are really important because they're marked by CD4. And those are the cells that get infected by HIV and, and collapse and cause uh, immune collapse. So, so T cells, their function is to really coordinate and, and maintain an, an immune response. The problem is that when they go in the wrong direction, um, they become pathogenic because then cause autoimmune disease. So they attack your own body. And one of the big conundrums for a T cell is to figure out who is self and who's not self. Um, yeah. And when they make a mistake, I mean, you know, when it's when everything is fine, then they can make that distinction between self and non-self. Non-self being a cell that's infected by a virus, hopefully non-self being potentially some kinds of cancers, um, that's that's when a T cell is doing its job correctly, but sometimes it fails to distinguish between self and non-self and attacks the self, and that's when you get lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and 
all the other immune immunological autoimmune diseases, Crohn's disease, et cetera, um, that is, that is the, there's a T cell gone, gone, gone in the wrong direction. So in the case of these new immunotherapies, it's been now very widely observed that you can activate a T cell, make it attack a cancer, but if it goes wrong, it turns into a uh, cell that causes autoimmunity and that autoimmunity is very difficult to control. So you have this constant dichotomy as it were between a T cell that's going right and a T cell that's going wrong. Said Arthur, we have uh, non-human, well, we have several trillion human cells. We have our non-human half, several trillion or more bacterial cell that reside on our skin and in our gut and in our body. And then we found through horizontal gene transfer that we have, you know, bacterial cells that are now actually part of our physiology, actually part of us. Um, there's currently a lot of promise. You, you read a number of things about uh, people thinking and, and experts and researchers believing that there's a lot to the study of our of our gut uh, and our bacterial cells. Do you think that the uh, that the promise is justified? Are you excited about what we may learn from this, or is this just something that's uh, sort of sort of a passing fad? Oh no, I don't think it's a passing fad. I think it's there's a lot to be learned there. Um, there is a, there's a um, um, a great book by Ed Young called I Contain Multitudes, um, which talks a little bit about some of this. Um, you know, we're finding out more and more. We're finding out that these bacteria actually um, affect our responses to um, um, to various drugs, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. immunotherapy among, uh, you know, T-cell therapy among them. Um, the bacteria protect us against autoimmune diseases. Um, they can, you know, they actually help us in digestion um, and they help us in uh, preventing being colonized by even worse bacteria. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons that, that as a physician, I try to give antibiotics very thoughtfully and carefully because the last thing you want to do is to kill the bacteria that are helpful to you that are living on your skin and in your gut and, and are really responsible for preventing really nasty infections like Clostridium difficile, which is one of the, um, you know, nasty infections that you can get if you take too much antibiotics or too many antibiotics. So um, absolutely, there's a lot to be learned. Their contribution uh, via via just living in with us, with us, or potentially via gene transfer and other mechanisms. Um, I think there's a very rich area which has been under 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 explored so far. Yeah, it's all very exciting. Uh, just a final question that I have for you, and that is. Uh, what has surprised you the most as you research this book? Well, what's the most surprising thing for me is how we are, an exciting thing for me is how we're learning to manipulate cells, what we're doing to cells, um, and making what I call new humans. Um, you know, I, I use the word new humans in this book in a very provocative way. I, I mean, you know, as I say, I, it's, it, I, I don't mean sort of a infrared, psychedelic, sci-fi enhanced sort of Keanu Reeves in a black mumu. Um, I mean, um, <laughs> the fact that we can, we're, we can actually manipulate the basic units of life, uh, often outside in a petri dish and then return them back into the body. There are people walking around with the, a bone marrow that belongs to someone else. There are people walking around with electrodes that are stimulating cells in their bodies to treat uh, diseases such as obsessive compulsive disease or depression or Parkinson's disease. These are to me much more interesting because they represent crossing a boundary into a new kind of exploration of who we are and what we will be like in the future. Um, and that's the way I use the word new human. It's a real, it's, it's, it's I think in some ways a provocation to, to stop thinking about sort of, as I said, this psychedelic sci-fi vision, but really think about ourselves as assemblages and taking parts and moving those parts around either within our own bodies or from one body to the next and creating what I think are new kinds of humans. Yes, it's more like science non-fi than, than <laughs> sci-fi. Well, well as, um, as someone, someone said, science non-fi is usually more exciting than science. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. Well, how about you leave us with this, Siddhartha? What is the most promising and exciting new discovery in cellular engineering, cellular medicine that we probably haven't heard about yet? 
Well, I don't know how many people have heard about this, about, about the idea of using uh, various stem cells uh, to treat diseases that were previously untreatable. So for instance, there are people, there are scientists, um, Doug Melton comes to mind, who are making pancreatic beta cells, the kind of cells that you lose when you have diabetes, type 1 diabetes. And they're trying to figure out how to make them out of stem cells and re-injecting them into your body so that now you can get, people with type 1 diabetes can now make their own insulin. Um, um, I'm not sure how much you've heard, but you know this, this is already happening right now. Um, another one, I'll just give you a great example, sickle cell disease, an ancient human disease. Um, we're using a combination of gene therapy and cell therapy to cure uh, sickle cell disease. And the way we're doing that, the scientists are doing that, is by turning on a fetal form of hemoglobin. Um, and finally, I'll tell you from my own lab, I don't know how much... Um, you know, we're, we've, we've found a new way, a completely new way of using cell therapy and gene therapy to attack a disease that really is, 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 is very malignant, which is acute myelogenous leukemia, AML. So, um, um, and that's, you know, through a company that we started called VOR, which is really now la launching its first human trials. So there's a whole universe of therapies um, that are being developed that are, you know, uh, able to bring us um, new hope for, for, for patients. Well, and you bring us all of the opportunity to amass a new knowledge about the song of the cell. It's an exploration of medicine and the new human. Our guest is Siddhartha Mukherjee. Siddhartha, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak here with John Wells. Well, most of us know by now that inflammation seems to be the cause of many diseases, soreness in our joints and other things like autoimmune disease. But what we don't know is a full picture of inflammation, whether it's acute or chronic, hidden or overt, and what modern science can tell us about the insidiousness of inflammation. Enter an expert and our next guest, Dr. Shilpa Ravella. She has written a page-turning tale of inflammation. It's called A Silent Fire, the story of inflammation, diet, and disease. Shilpa Ravella, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a pleasure to be here and to speak with you about these topics today. Well, it's so important. Your book gives just a fascinating history of inflammation. So maybe we should just start from the, uh, I wish my German was better because I would say it in German, but the little doctor. <laughs> and it starts literally hundreds of years ago, the first mention or recorded history of inflammation. Can you tell us where it all began? Sure, I can, I can actually start even further back in uh, the first century with Celsus. And so inflammation basically is an ancestral force and it evolved to, to target things like pathogens, poisons, and traumas. And these are all things that ancient humans routinely succumb to. So inflammation was a benevolent force that evolved to protect us. And uh, Celsus, uh, the Roman physician Celsus, uh, came up with the cardinal signs of inflammation in the first century. And these are things like redness, heat, swelling, and pain. And if you say stub your toe, for example, or uh, slam your knee against a table, you can see these signs uh, in your body and you can actually see them with the naked eye. And this is when blood flow is increasing inside the body, the blood vessels are dilating, fluid and protein are leaking out into the tissues, putting pressure on your nerve endings, leading to painful, painful swelling. So we're all familiar with this. And I, I think in, in part, the story of inflammation or the story of silent inflammation, which is a type of inflammation that we are not as familiar with, did start with Rudolf Virchow, who was a German scientist. And Virchow was one of the first scientists to really see inflammation on a cellular level. So he, he was someone who was just a fascinating uh, figure to me, especially because he lived in an age when, when human bodies were, were uh, thought to uh, develop disease because of things called dyscrasias or an imbalance of the humors. He lived in an age when bloodletting was a common therapy or applying leeches was also a common therapy for disease. So it was just 
an amazing story uh, to me to hear about how Virchow formulated some of these theories. And he also, in his age, posited that inflammation was a cause of certain disorders. And we're now actually reviving some of those theories that Virchow had hypothesized in the 19th century. So it was sort of a very interesting historical narrative arc. Right. And he also adds a fifth cardinal sign of inflammation, which is really interesting and maybe how we experience inflammation more in modern days when we want our muscles to perform. But this fifth cardinal sign is loss of function. Yeah. So he was very much ahead of his time where how how widespread was the acceptance of his scientific theories i think you know he was a very popular physician in his time uh, he did some amazing work but some of his theories were not as well accepted for example his idea that inflammation could be a potential cause of heart disease and you know it uh it was it was su sort of a subversive idea even many years later, uh, decades later, and even a century later. So, so you can imagine at the time, it was uh, not widely accepted in Virchow's time either. And, you know, this idea that something as uh, nebulous as inflammation could be an actual cause of disease took quite some time to take hold. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Dr. Shilpa Ravella. Her new book, A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet and Disease. Dr. Ravella, I read in your book that we should have humans about 100 grams of fiber per day and that we all kind of fall short. We try to get our vegetables and our fruit and those sorts of things. And I thought I might be okay because I, I take uh, psyllium husks. I take a couple of tablespoons a day, but I just went to my kitchen and that's only 12 grams of uh, fiber. So can you, can you talk about what we need uh, to be able to feed our microbiome? Sure, that's that's a great question. And I think 100 grams a day of fiber is actually what our Paleolithic ancestors were consuming. So if we can get to that, that would be amazing. I think it, it could be somewhat tough. But the recommended daily allowances, uh, the recommended dietary fiber for women is about 25 grams and for men is 38 grams. And only 5% of folks in this country actually meet those RDAs. And we actually need to go way beyond those RDAs. And fiber is actually a crucial, our most crucial anti-inflammatory nutrient. It affects all arms of the immune system. And uh, it, it is especially important for the microbes in our gut because what the microbes do to the fiber, the microbes ferment that fiber and they produce beneficial compounds like short-chain fatty acids, for example, which are incredibly important, not only for gut health, but uh, the health of your immune system. You know, the short-chain fatty acids function in the gut, but also throughout the body and they calm inflammation in the body. So eating as much as much fiber as you can is, is critical from an anti-inflammatory standpoint. What is hidden inflammation and can we get tested for that? That's another really great question. And one of the things I do mention in the book is that the idea of hidden inflammation is really, you know, the salient unifying thread of this concept is that we are not routinely used to testing for or treating it in clinics. So if you go to your physician, you know, your doctor is unlikely to say, hey, let me give you a test for hidden inflammation. And if you have it, we are going to treat it. So hidden inflammation is a concept that has emerged over the last couple of decades in the medical literature. And we're finding that it is tied to a variety of our modern chronic diseases, nearly all of them. Now there are associations and in some cases causation with diseases as in heart disease. And this type of hidden inflammation, you know, we have blood markers that can test for it. For example, something called high sensitivity C-reactive protein. And C-reactive protein is a molecule that is made by your liver in our response to inflammatory cytokines. And high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is used in some cardiology clinics, can detect minute elevations of CRP. 
And CRP acts like a thermometer. It, it uh, sort of tells you how inflamed you are. But the problem with CRP and other inflammatory blood markers is that they may not be too specific. So they may not tell you exactly where the inflammation is in your body, why it's there, how long it's been there for, what's causing it. So that's the challenge with, with some of these inflammatory blood markers because they give you a Polaroid snapshot of the inflammation in your blood, but it's hard to get too specific at times. Now, there are some surrogate markers for inflammation in your body. Something as simple as just having some belly fat, for example, can be a surrogate marker for inflammation because the fat on your belly functions very differently from the fat that pads your thighs or your upper arms. The fat that pads your thighs and upper arms can actually be protective and act like a sink for toxins. Whereas the fat that's around the belly is actually a marker for what we call visceral fat. And visceral fat is a deep fat that wraps around your internal organs. And this type of fat is particularly insidious because it churns mm -hmm. out hidden inflammation at all hours of the day. So it functions like an inflammatory organ. So the belly fat is a surrogate marker for inflammation. And if you go to your doctor's office and you're tested for things like diabetes or insulin resistance, those can also uh, be markers of being silently inflamed because we know that there are very intricate connections between the immune system and metabolism. And so if you have, if you have those things and you most likely also do have hidden inflammation, if you're getting a test, a CRP test, that it may not show you all different types of inflammation. So for example, I have a friend who has an autoimmune disease, and I think it's the CRP test they wanted him to have to sort of ascertain that yes, indeed, that there's this inflammatory marker. But if he has some other kind of silent inflammation, for example, like vascular, you know, or hypertension, which could be a silent inflammation, it wouldn't necessarily tell him the difference between the two, or what would it tell him in that case? Exactly. So that's, that's part of the problem is that even if you have a simple something as simple as a cold or a flu, you know, your body is inflamed and your CRP levels could be high in that setting. But that's just really telling us that, you know, you have a cold or a flu, and we're not sure, you know, how, how long that CRP has been has been high for, and and what what exactly is causing it. So it can be challenging for autoimmune disorders. We do have specific antibodies in each case that that folks uh, can check, you know, for specific diagnostic criteria for autoimmune disorders. For this type of low level inflammation, a lot of the blood markers we we currently have do tend to be non quite non specific. You know, as I mentioned in, in some of the cardiology clinics, checking a high sensitivity CRP, which can detect very small elevations, can be useful. There's a lot of research going on right now on perhaps coming up with inflammatory signatures. So checking groups of uh, inflammatory molecules as opposed to just single molecules. And maybe even checking uh, the inflammatory uh, molecules in response to challenges. How does our body uh, mount uh, these responses? So there are all kinds of interesting uh, things, hopefully coming down the pipeline in terms of how we can capture the state of being silently inflamed uh, more specifically. Yes, it's so interesting, uh, you know, as we all know from if we've ever knocked our noggin and we get a little <laughs> In, inflamed bump there. That's, I mean, that's my earliest memory of inflammation is bumping my head <laughs> and getting a little lump. And that is going to help uh, heal my bump on my noggin, correct? And then, yes. and then, you know, conversely, all this, this inflammation that we're experiencing in our bodies is also harming us. It is, you know, different sides of the same coin, which is, you know, you tie that also to our immune system. Our immune system fights off the bad guys, but also then our immune systems are known to go awry and then start attacking ourselves. So again, different sides of the same coin. Um, and, and maybe if you could head into this, how are autoimmune diseases connected to inflammation? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, so we're familiar with the overt autoimmune disorders. So things like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, you know, 
So you can have the inflamed joints and rheumatoid arthritis. You see the skin rashes and lupus. In my own gastroenterology clinic, I see patients with inflammatory bowel disease. So you can see intestinal inflammation. So you can see the overt inflammation or the inflammation that we're used to picking up, that we're accustomed to picking up in these typical autoimmune disorders. And we're finding also that this notion of hidden inflammation, there is some emerging literature telling us that if you are silently inflamed, you do tend to have a higher risk of developing an autoimmune disorder down the line as well. Boy, that's interesting. Um, Dr. Bravello, what one question about inflammation would you like to have answered that's not been answered yet that could be a game changer? Is there something that's holding us back from, from learning more? Is there one question that you'd like to have answered? I think, you know, I would love to see more large-scale clinical trials on, on treating inflammation in a variety of disorders and, and really getting to, you know, could this be a root cause of other disorders, you know, just beyond heart disease. We have associations right now with nearly all of our modern chronic disorders, but as we accrue large-scale clinical trials in these realms, you know, we will really be able to state, hopefully, that inflammation, you know, can indeed be a cause of a variety of these disorders and and we do have the associations and that still I think is a game changer in in many cases because what we're seeing is that this hidden inflammation you know it ties together so many different things and that really forces us to start treating patients not only in part but also in concert because we have a common thread running through all of these disorders that we want to address and and that also forces us to go to those lifestyle triggers you know the dietary and the lifestyle triggers of inflammation and and to prescribe those things as we would prescribe drugs but i would love to see more research in this area i think it's such an exciting field and i'm very excited to see what's what's coming down the pipeline yeah and it, it also seems that we have some answers on the microbiome side but mostly we have questions and there's a there's a tremendous upside it appears in that area I'd like to see a lot more research, you know, occur there. And and during COVID and now post-COVID, it's really hard to get these trials going, isn't it? I think so. I think I think for quite some time, you know, the focus was on COVID and 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 still is. Uh, and I, I think also the nature of of uh, conducting uh, microbiome studies in general, uh, you know. It can, in in some ways, be difficult to conduct and to interpret. You know, uh, to truly say that a shift in the microbiome or a change in the uh, species in your microbiome is a cause of disease, uh, as opposed to a consequence. So, so we really have to sort of delineate that a bit better. We are having a conversation with Dr. Shilpa Ravella. She is a transplant gastroenterologist with expertise in nutrition. She's an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. And I have to say the thing about your book that makes it a page turner, as I said in the introduction, is the, the number of stories, the, the history that you go into, but also stories from your own ER. I, I mean, some of them are, wow, kind of hard to read through, but it's really important to see what happens to people's guts, for example, when there is chronic and maybe silent inflammation or even acute overt inflammation. I'm reading this chapter seven uh, resolution, and it talks about you you going into um, the ER and encountering, or, or the ICU actually, and encountering a patient that, you know, basically her whole gastrointestinal system is ulcerating and bleeding. And um, I, I just wonder what it's like for you to see, you know, to have this look into the, <laughs> the innards, you know, to see the results of inflammation. And it must make you feel so much like there, there's so much more we could be doing as humans that walk the planet. Yeah, I mean, I have worked with a variety of end-stage patients, you know, particularly with folks who have undergone the intestinal transplants and uh, some folks with inflammatory bowel disorders who have severe intestinal inflammation. And I think one, I, I'm just fascinated by modern medicine in that context, by you know the potential of uh, modern medicine to address some of these issues. You know, the, just the fact that we are able, you know, that our surgeons are able to perform uh, multiple organ transplants is, is just truly fascinating to me, and that we have the medications 
currently in order to suppress the immune system so that the body is able to somewhat accept those organs. So I'm quite fascinated by that whole side of it. And at the same time, I think uh, it's also important to be cognizant of you know, these root causes of uh, lifestyle chronic disorders, because many of the chronic diseases that we suffer with, you know, heart disease, cancer, obesity, diabetes, in large part, these are due to lifestyle. So there's this whole corollary, you know, we have to accept modern medicine, it's amazing, and it's wonderful, but also address these root cause uh, lifestyle disorders by changing our diet by changing our lifestyle. And the interesting thing to me as well is that these lifestyle changes, these dietary and lifestyle changes can actually help us adapt to modern medicine because all of us at some point, if we live long enough, we may need a prosthetic knee, we may need a prosthetic valve, we may need an organ transplant with the way it's looking. We we are new humans and we're, we are going to be comprised of new materials, you know, and uh, we, we do need to eat and live in ways that respect uh, the language of the immune system in order to thrive in that in that context. So, so part of the uh, book is really about adapting to our current environment, not just climate change and pandemics and chronic diseases, but also the potential of modern medicine and, and all of the wonderful things it, it is offering us. I just have a comment about how last week I called to schedule a colonoscopy and they said, okay, how about May 18th? And, you know, we're in early November now. And someone told me it's because now they are, so I'm in my 50s. I was told that now they're suggesting that if you're over 40 to start getting a colonoscopy. Why is that? So that we are seeing a lot of colon cancer in folks who are younger and younger, you know, folks even in their 30s, younger and, you know, uh, even folks who have no typical risk factors, who have no family history, uh, but who are in, say, their early 30s coming in with uh, florid cancers. So the the age for screening for colon cancer has actually decreased to 45 now through some society guidelines. So I do start screening my patients at, at age 45. That being said, I think... There has been a lag, you know, especially post-pandemic, with with uh, folks scheduling their elective procedures and their screening colonoscopies, and in some hospitals there may still be a backlog for some of those procedures, and also colonoscopies. Most folks do not think of them as very pleasant endeavors. You know, they they want to they want to put uh, those uh, tests off sometimes. So so we do have a lag as well. Modern medicine is so exciting today, and it's uh, it's given a lot of people sort of a you know a false hope, so that they can they they may decide to have just the way they are. They have a low fiber, high fat diet. They have a lot of processed foods. They're not getting exercise, and as you write in your book, that that affects our microbiome. It may kill off some of the good microbiome, some of the good bacteria. It could increase inflammation or bring on the silent inflammation. There's so many things that we can do and we just don't do it. Yeah, absolutely. I know there's not a question there. Sorry. <laughs> just no, a, no, a I, I think it's totally valid. And and I think, you know, it's 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 a tough thing because, you know, for example, to go from a hundred percent Western diet, which is really all around us, and I grew up in a small Indiana town, so it, you know, it's uh, for the first 18 years of my life. And and so I'm, I'm very well aware of kind of all the advertising that comes into play here, especially for kids. And it's tough to go from 100% Western diet to, you know, a minimally processed whole foods, plant-based diet just overnight. Because first of all, it's tough for your body to process all that fiber instantaneously. As humans, we have probably less than 20 enzymes that process carbohydrates, but our microbes in our guts have tens of thousands. So in order to cultivate the appropriate microbiome, one that can process all of that fiber, it takes some time. And, and so I tell my patients, you know, just start with the baby steps. You, you know, you have to start small. You can't go from zero to hundred overnight, but you really have to start small with incorporating more and more of those whole plant foods into your diet. And the other part of all of this, I think also is that these lifestyle changes have to be pleasurable. Historically, traditionally, we were doing this for a very long time, for generations. We were eating minimally processed whole plant foods for a very long time. You know, we were getting appropriate exercise. And, you know, with things like exercise and other lifestyle factors, it's important for those things to be pleasurable too. You can incorporate exercise into your daily routines. You know, you don't need a fancy gym 
or anything like that or a fancy bike. And that's how some of the folks in the blue zones, that's how the, uh, that's how they exercise and uh, the blue zones. That's right. It's a, it's a concept popularized by journalist Dan Buettner. And these are pockets around the world where individuals have the highest life expectancies and their diets are pleasurable. They exercise, you know, by taking brisk walks and working around the house and gardening and all kinds of things that incorporate movement into their daily lives. So I think, you know, these things have to be pleasurable, have to incorporate them into our culture and into our communities uh, seamlessly in order for it to take hold and to start small as well. Dr. Bravella, I understand that right now, currently, we don't really know uh, who the good guys are or the bad guys are as far as the microbiome. What are what's good bacteria? What's not good bacteria? And yet, there are, there are fecal transplant studies going on, and and we we still don't really understand the microbiome. What uh, helps us and what doesn't help us or possibly hurts us. When do you think we'll get to the point? How many years do you think it'll be until we have a much better understanding of that? I think we're, we're definitely slowly garnering a better understanding of the microbiome. And, you know, we, we are able to say we do have some good guys, you know, for example, the lactobacilli and the bifidobacteria are very important anti-inflammatory bacteria. But then there's also this broader understanding that to label any germ as wholly good or wholly evil, it's 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 kind of a dichotomy that's that's hard to process because a lot of times it's what you feed the germs that can change their behaviors. So we want to also look at the behaviors of these germs. And mm. that sort of confounds the whole picture because, you know, if the germs are sort of inching into deeper, uh, deeper layers of the intestinal mucosa, they tend to create more inflammation. If the germs are fed fiber, you know, they're creating short chain fatty acids and uh, really helping to quell infl in inflammation. So the same cohort of bacteria that you have, depending on what you feed it, can have very different behaviors. So that's something that I think is important to keep in mind as well. And so we are just learning a lot more about, about uh, the microbiome. And one of the most important things as well is just the diversity of microbes in our guts and that's a marker for health and a, a microbiome that has low diversity is oftentimes an, an inflammatory microbiome so uh, that's one of the things that has come out as well yeah and uh, uh we have a gentleman named chris fisher he's the He's the chairman of O-Search, which is a company that tags uh, white sharks, great whites, and uh, and they study those, and they've been doing this around the world. When they swab the the teeth of a great white and they study the microbiome and, and what's going on in that particular animal, which has been around for 275 million years, we've only been around for about four and a half million years, they find that the diversity is much less in the microbiome than in a typical human. And I thought that was interesting if they've somehow evolutionary, evolutionarily gotten more, I don't know what, you know, but more efficient. That is very interesting, actually. And and our own microbiomes, you know, since the industrial revolution especially are have gotten less diverse over time, you know, particularly with uh, the Western diet being so incorporated and uh, globally as well as it spreads. For our listeners, this book is, it's really a masterpiece. It's a silent fire, the story of inflammation, diet, and disease. Our guest is Dr. Shilpa Ravella. Shilpa, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. I feel like I could go on all day talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to speak with both of you today. And stay with us. We'll be back after these words from our underwriters. You're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City.